This week's episode of the Secret Library Podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. To get a 30-day trial complete with a free audiobook download, visit secretlibrarypodcast.com slash audible. This is episode 105 of the Secret Library Podcast, The Truth About Writing Books. My guests, I have three guests this week. The first guest is Scott Carney, and my second pair of guests is Harmon Leon and Ted Brawl, talking about, each of them talking about the process of writing very different kinds of books. So I know you'll look forward to hearing from all of them. Um, Just the only announcement is that as you hear this episode, I am actually on vacation. So I am recording this bio for you, um, this introduction from the past. So hello, future. I hope you're having a great time um, here at the end of May. So we will be a little slow to responding if you reach out to us. So please bear with us. And thank you to everyone who has signed up for the Patreon. We will announce all of you when we are back from vacation in the beginning of June. So with that said, let's get on with the show. My first guest this week is Scott Carney, who some of you will remember back from episode 34. So I'll give you a quick rundown on Scott's achievements for those of you who were not here for that episode, but I think you'll want to run back and listen afterwards. Scott is a senior fellow at the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism and a 2016-17 Scripps Fellow at the Center for Environmental Journalism in Boulder, Colorado. What Doesn't Kill Us, his most recent book, is a New York Times bestseller. He's also written the books The Red Market and A Death on Diamond Mountain. Scott was a contributing editor at Wired for five years, and his writing has also appeared in Mother Jones, Men's Journal, Playboy, Foreign Policy, Discover, Outside, and Fast Company. His work has been the subject of a variety of radio and television programs, including on NPR and National Geographic TV. So the last episode, episode 34, when I talked to Scott about writing What Doesn't Kill Us, he dropped a little bomb at the end, which was his formula for writing a book. And he said, if you write 500 words a day, five days a week, you'll have a book in a year. And that was a little like, woo excitement buzz that hit me um, right almost at the end of our conversation. And so cut to seven or eight months later, and Scott and I ended up having dinner um, with my husband, and we kept talking about how exciting this idea was and all of the practices and principles that he used. And it turned out my obsessing about this idea, I was not alone. And Scott went ahead and created a course on all of these kinds of principles that have served him really well in moving from just a journalism career, which was working really well, into also writing books and advising other people on how they can do that. So as we've been talking more about how to build a career as a writer and how publishing can be a platform for you to do other things, I really wanted Scott to come back on and share some of the exciting parts of his course. So I know you'll want to go back and listen to episode 34 to learn more about Scott, but I really focused today on what he learned and what he shares in his course for writers, so you can get as much as you can out of that learning experience. So here we go with Scott Carney. Hey, Scott, thanks for coming on again. Long time no talk. How you been? I I know, I'm good. I'm good. Well, we, we had the podcast conversation, and then we had dinner, and then now we're back on the podcast. I know, I know. It, it, maybe there'll be a cycle. We'll have another dinner later, and there'll be another podcast. It, it could be a whole thing. It could be a whole thing. It's great. <laughs> You'd be proud of me also, I thought of you, because I went to the Korean spa this weekend, and I was like coaching my friend into the cold plunge. I was like, it's good for you. And yeah. I, I brought up your book, and I was like, get in that cold water. 
It's like and convinces they, your nervous system. This is not going to kill you. It's great. Did they and do she it? was actually really like the first time I ever took her, this particular friend, she was like traumatized by the cold plunge. And now she was like, I really want to get in the cold plunge. And I was like, yes. Nice. Awesome. We're doing it. Yeah, the um, endorphins all came out. She felt in, in, invigorated. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. No, I know. It's great. You kind of get hooked on it. Um, so I wanted, I was excited to talk to you today because you have created a course, which I think is going to be really helpful to lots of people called the fine print. And mm -hmm. talking about things, one of the things I appreciated about the course was that you were um, not sugarcoating it, so to speak. <laughs> in the whole process. Right. <laughs> and I think that it can be easy. I probably have, you know, I'm very much like motivation, like you need to stay excited, like get into your writing, your writing matters. And all of that is true. Um, mm -hmm. However, I think that in terms of the practical execution and actually surviving as a business and the whole money side of it, this is something that we're talking about more often on the show now, because I think it's important. It's, it's, mm -hmm. you can't just like write up in a fairy castle and live up there and you know yeah unless will uh, bring you food unless you happen to own the fairy castle um and you have like a like someone supporting you uh the the unfortunate part of the whole writing career is that we don't get to stick around in that headspace if we don't have money we don't put food on the table and we end up in pr like that's what happens to writers yeah <laughs> or in advertising mm -hmm. and uh and doing that and it's like it, this is like one of the things I've been passionate about since like probably you know five years into my career. You know when I signed my first terrible contract, and then I was like, oh no, how do I fix this terrible contract? That's like um, you know which is costing me so much potential money. And uh, I you know I started this website years ago called uh, Word Rates, which was trying to like more or less unionize writers to like negotiate better rates and think about this stuff we do as a real practical business. And unfortunately, Word Rates failed for a number of very sad reasons. Uh, but you know, this, this course, uh, The Fine Print, is sort of my attempt to at least give the, the business skills to writers to negotiate better contracts in order to, you know, turn their their own, uh, you know, creative efforts into just money, you know, into into like a business. It's not a get rich quick scheme, mind you. This is like you're gonna work your ass off, but it is actually possible to achieve the middle class dream if you, you know, can sort of negotiate this very sort of complex and competitive terrain uh, smartly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's. There's a lot of practical skills that you need to have. And I think there were a number of them that you covered and like, you know, how to actually write a pitch, like what it should include. And mm -hmm. I, one thing that we touched on the last time you were on, which was your schedule as to how you can write a book in a year, which is the timeline you usually get for a nonfiction book from mm -hmm. selling the pitch to having to turn the manuscript in. Right. And even before that, though, like how to even think about these ideas um, way earlier when you're writing an article, when you're just coming up with an idea, how to like grow these small things into bigger ones in sort of practical step-by-step -step ways. That's what I want to sort of offer people as much as possible. I think that's a good place to dive into is because you have ideas all the time. I mean, having talked to you for a while, I mean, and I think I'm similar. Like I, I have 
you know, conversations with people and I have like nine business ideas for them. And I'm like, you need to be doing this. (laughs) And this is very exciting and you can go and pitch this. And I'm just got ideas coming out the ears, but you have to get really clear about where you want to go. And that was one of the things I thought was useful that you talked about was about figuring out what kind of writer you want to be in the long term Mm -hmm. and not just willy nilly taking any assignment that may have nothing to do with where you want to go. And I'm wondering how you narrowed your focus onto what you're doing and started to do that plan for yourself. I think a lot of people sort of flop about in the beginning of their career, (laughs) mostly because (laughs) flopping is the right word, right? We were like, you know, when I first started out, I had no clue. I just wanted to do interesting things. So I sort of took what jobs came to me sort of willy nilly, which ended me up at the very beginning of my career as like a food writer of all things. Like I was a, I was a restaurant reviewer in Manhattan, very like in like we're talking 2000, 2001 uh, time period. And, you know, I have no passion for food. I can tell the difference between wines because some are red and some are white. But, um, you know, it's just sort of like what landed in my lap. And and if I had pursued that I and kept on just taking the assignments that were easiest, because once you write one restaurant review, it's easier to get another one and then another one, another one. And all of a sudden you become a restaurant reviewer, which was not my passion whatsoever. Like I wanted to do like big, long think pieces for like, you know, uh, I think at that point I was dreaming of the Atlantic and the New Yorker and like, you know, talking about the Bush administration, some sort of uh, big practical ways. And I was on this other track. Um, and what I what I sort of took out from the, after doing this sort of flopping about for, you know, a, a little while was that, you know, it, it, at the beginning of your career, at any time you're writing, you're, the, the, the stuff you have written becomes your resume, becomes your track record, and it sort of like calcifies you into that track. So if you have an ambition to be, you know, in your mind, to be the, yeah, let's say you wanted to be a food writer, definitely do restaurant reviews, but if you wanted to be like a political correspondent or a war correspondent or a lifestyle editor or something, you 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 want to 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 pursue those writing projects early so that you could you learn how to grow them into bigger things down the line and that that branding thing is is like pretty important because everything you do is your brand like we as writers we don't get resumes we get um we get our track record yeah and you get yeah you get what you've published like what have you Mm -hmm. written and the longer you've done something i mean and this is true in in most creative fields Mm -hmm. you see like have you done this same thing before People are far more willing to take a chance on somebody maybe who's doing a larger scale piece on a topic mm-hmm. you've previously covered or, but whenever somebody makes a lateral move, it's a harder sell. Right. And, and, and you know, but, and if you also get in the habit of like, t- like taking short, easy assignments, right? Let's say you were like a blogger for Vice magazine, because I, I like to rag on Vice, right? They do these like sort of short little things that get you paid like a hundred or 200 bucks uh, when you write them. And you can bang them out in like a day. So people can actually make a living doing those short little pieces. Uh, but the problem is, is that when you, you, you do that for a long time, I don't know anyone who hasn't burned out, right? And you're always- no, it's exhausting. Up, and you end up chasing like the next check all the time. Like, you know, you, you make your 200 bucks every time and then you're like, oh, I have to do this other story because I have to keep that sort of wheel churning. But if instead you think about your projects in, in different ways, what, like you think, well, I'm going to do this little thing in order to grow into a bigger article and to grow to a bigger article. And eventually you've got that theme park ride. You've got that movie. You've got that book deal. You've got, I don't know, t-shirt, 
anything, um, then, then all of a sudden you, you, you gain momentum instead of playing catch up. How do you know, I mean, what are your criteria, I guess I would say, is the question. What criteria do you apply to an idea to determine whether it's a short vice piece versus, you know, a book or a film or a documentary mm. or a longer term project? Uh, yeah, you don't always know in some, <laughs> in some ways, like, like there's no, like I'm not psychic, right? Uh, I, and I usually will like kick like nine marbles down the hill all at once and hoping some of them gain momentum. So I'll have like, you know, the, the beauty of being a creative person is that I have so many ideas. So I sort of put them out and I sort of kick them a little bit until something moves. And, and that could be, you know, a source saying, yes, I want to talk to you. That could be uh, a magazine saying, yeah, let's go do this. That could just be, uh, you know, a, a, a smile on the street from the right person at the right time. Like, it, it doesn't matter. There, there's something that gives it a momentum. And, and I put energy into the things that, that, that have it. But I guess there's also this other thing. And some ideas don't go anywhere, right? Some ideas ends up as like a tweet. And, and from the tweet, I don't have any more ideas that, that sort of spawn anything bigger. There's, no, there's nothing happens. And then, you know, um, I, don't, I don't necessarily revisit it uh, unless I feel that inspiration. But I, I, I do think that part of me is, is always thinking somewhere, if I have a pitch, is like, could this be a movie or a TV show? Like, that's in my mind. Like, is this somehow cinematic? Is there a narrative which is interesting? Is this a story and not a topic? Because, you know, a lot of those short pieces are topics, right? They don't have, like, these arcs of characters that can, like, make you emotionally hooked. And I think that if I can find something where I'm hooked that answers some bigger question that sort of unfolds into another question, I know that I can potentially make it into something else. And those are the sort of ideas that, 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 that now I pursue. But I'm not always right. Yeah, I think it's tough. But I mean, I think you probably develop a certain amount of like, I don't know, the metaphor of like having the ear for it or just knowing when something mm -hmm. feels like it might be bigger or that you could keep talking about it. Because as you say, you know, throughout the course, and, and as I've talked to you before, like you're going to have to talk about this topic a lot for a long right. time if you're going to write mm -hmm. a book about it. So mm -hmm. it had better be something that you're pretty excited about talking about. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And finding, you know, excitement in your work, I mean, and in life in general is almost like a, like a yogic practice, right? Like, how do you remain in the present and engaged in what you're doing? Because to, to some degree, every book I write, I hate at, at some point. I will reach that point where I'm like, forget this thing. I just want to, you know, hike and live in a cabin in the woods for the rest of my life and no one would ever talk to me again. <laughs> but... Uh, but 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 trying to get to to some sort of enjoyment that uh, uh, that 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 keeps you present is certainly one of the the tasks that that we need to maintain. And the more interesting uh, an idea it is at first, will give you more runway. Yeah, definitely. Something that you feel like okay, there, and there's a reason. I mean, I think something that I mm -hmm. see that ties all of your books together is that there isn't just it isn't just an interesting story. There is a benefit mm -hmm. that the reader can gain either as a cautionary tale or as something that would be, you know, positive for their life. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and for me, the question in all of my works uh, that, that binds it together is, is what about the story makes us human? Like, what is, what does it mean to be human? And all of my stories sort of like, in some ways, answer that question from, you know, 
very different perspectives. But, you know, my first book was about organ trafficking. You know, what does that market mean uh, for uh, who we are as people? What is the second book was about cults and, and how religious experiences inform us. And the third one is about environment. And I've got a fourth and fifth book that I'm working on as well. Oh, you've got a fifth in there. You just referenced the fourth. You've got a you've got I some know. runway going. I, I, yeah, at this point, I've got I'm pretty good at planning, right? And because uh, you know, it's nice to have a one project to jump to, and then another one, and, and to keep going. Because you know, when that treadmill stops, then you're 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 stuck in a place where you don't have income again, and then now you're no longer middle class. You're you're heading towards that PR. Um, life ahead. You're, you're, you're starting to look at, at job advertising for, for ad, advertising executives, and I don't want to do that. Uh, and this is why that, that you know that this business sense that I'm that I'm trying to to help people with is is like super important. <laughs> you know? Yeah, we, huge, we, hugely important. And 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 it really just like infects every piece of the process. You know, from coming up with an idea to like managing your time. Um, branding, you know, understanding how publishing works, understanding how to negotiate contracts, or even to, how to read them. Um, you know, it, it's it, it, at every point you, you you do something. You have to also gel that to some degree with how this will keep you alive uh, uh, in the future. One thing that you that you touched on that I would love to expand on and talk about a little more because it's mm-hmm. something I've been thinking about a lot a lot lately is the hybrid publishing model uh, model oh. because there is this whole there's a lot of sort of traditional publishing or you know mm-hmm. indie or self-publishing but right i'm really interested in what's starting to happen where you can have the best of both i know this has been like i feel like i struck a genius moment with my last book and it's something that i've been thinking about 10 years ago when i first started this and i just never quite had the um you know, the right positioning to pull it off. But, you know, in traditional publishing models, let's talk books here um, for yeah. a moment. Let's say you have all the rights to your stuff to begin with, and you're about to to pitch this to Simon & Schuster or whoever, Norton. And and, and, and you, you pitch that, you know, the way advances work, that let's say you get a $100,000 advance. Um, that money is then divided into tranches, usually about 33% uh, on you know, when you sign the contract, when you deliver the manuscript, and when they finally publish it. So you get $33,000, you know, when you start the project, and that is really what your advance is to get, take you to the end. But the thing that, that we, do, that the, the trap is, is that most publishing contracts have about a 10% royalty rate, which means you have to sell something around 30,000 books to earn out that $100,000 advance. And most people never get to that number, which means that at the end of the, your, your run, um, and of course, if you wrote The Next Eat, Pray, Love, then you, you shouldn't be listening You'll to this podcast, right? You should be on a beach <laughs> in Bali right now. Um, but most people, you know, and, and the vast majority of books sort of like play out in this sort of middling area where the publisher makes money because they get, you know, you get that 10% off your royalty account and they get the 90%. They almost... I mean, sometimes they lose money, but they don't all, you know, they lose money much less than you might think. You don't have to, you don't have to earn out for them to make money. Um, and, and, and here, and, and the critical problem is, is that when, since when the book comes out, 
It's unlikely that you ever earn another dollar. You don't put any money into publicizing your book because there's no actual financial reason to go out there and get on all the shows and and do all the you know do all the book tours, set up the speaking events and and you know posters or whatever it is because you don't want to invest that time rationally into promoting your book because you won't earn out. So instead, what you have to do is you have to jump to the next book contract, and then you're playing catch up again. And as I've mentioned earlier, I don't like the game catch up, so I, I tried to find a way out of this problem. And uh, where I've settled right now is is being very careful when I negotiate book contracts to retain certain amounts of rights um, all to myself. Uh, so that I, and and most recently, uh, it's been audiobooks. Um, you know where I where I, I do the traditional publishing route with the advance for the hardcover, and then I, I, I make it a stipulation in my in my uh, negotiations to say I am going to keep the audiobook, uh, and you and I will just walk from this deal if you want the audiobook. And some people will say, okay, fine, Scott, um, we don't want to negotiate with you. But but some people will say, okay, you can have the audiobook. We'll do the hardcover, and it's fine. And then what happens is you self-publish the audiobook. Um, or if you can get the ebook, you can self-publish the ebook. It doesn't really matter what it is, as uh, as long as at the end of the day, you're now I have an incentive to go publicize my book, and now attention is coming to to my thing. I'm getting financial incentive, and also, hey, I'm selling more hardcovers for the for the publisher too, so they're making more money, and everyone is happy. So this is the one of the hybrid models that I, that I. Suggest and there's other ways to to cut this up too. But for me, you know, I've made actually at this point, um, due to some random almost crazy Amazon karma, uh, my uh, book What Doesn't Kill Us was a, at a hundred uh, two days ago on the Amazon Yay. Audible thing. Yeah, hundreds are a really good place to be. Um, and and so that's like constant money. I think I've made more now on the audiobook than I have on the book advance and. My my book still hasn't earned out. It was a New York Times bestseller. You know, it has sold a ton of copies. It still has not earned out because the way they have set up the royalty rates on almost every book out there, um, it, it makes it almost mathematically uh, unlikely, if not impossible, to earn out. Uh, of course, if you write Harry Potter, you can do it, right? You'll be fine. But I think yeah. also <clears throat> people don't realize... And I don't even fully understand it because it's such a crazy algorithm. The way that they figure out what New York Times bestsellers, what are categorized that way. That yeah, there are certain so bookstores that they watch who's buying it. There has to be a mm -hmm. certain number of copies bought at certain places. It isn't simply this book sold more, sold more copies than any other book in this category. There are yeah, absolutely. numbers and, and secret sneaky numbers and algorithms that go into it that are going and, on behind and the also scenes. And also prejudice. I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, for instance, I was looking when my book came out, it came out at the same time as Tim Ferriss came out with a book called um, Tribe of Mentors or something like some some Tim Ferrissy book. Um, and it was clearly number one on Amazon. Right. Because, you know, as an author, we always freaking check our rankings. Right. Um, and, and I could see that his book was number one on Amazon. I was like, oh, OK. You know, and his book is like sort of similar to mine. We're in the same sort of like athletic -y, um, genre at that point. And I was like, oh, okay, so so he had number one of overall. And I, I checked the New York Times list at that time, and he wasn't on it at all. Um, nowhere on the list. And I think that there's also some, maybe some prejudice from the New York Times editors who sort of like capriciously say, we didn't want Tim Ferriss to be the number one book for some reason. I have no idea what, 
that reason was. Um, but certainly if he was number one on Amazon, he must have been selling in bookstores too. Yeah, exactly. It's, there's, there's just more to it. So I think it's important that people know that. I, I, of course, have no way to spell out this algorithm, but I will do some mm -hmm. research and maybe we can have somebody on who can explain this, you know, overtly to us. But I think also it isn't sure. publicly available. It's not like you can Google, how does the New York Times bestseller list work? And there will be a step-by-step -step tutorial because I don't think yeah. they want you to know that. It's a little bit like a secret shopper thing where... Mm -hmm. Nobody wants, you know, you don't want to know that Joe's Books in, in Milwaukee, if you sell 20 copies there, you're good. Like, I don't right. think they want everybody to know that. Right. I also don't know how important it is. Like, I mean, it certainly mm -hmm. feels good to be a New York Times bestseller because I can say now. You don't have a t-shirt that, that says yeah, New York right? Times bestselling <laughs> author that you wear out. Right. Uh, I don't. Um, and But I think that, you know, I think that it's, you know, does, does anyone look at that list and then say, oh, well. This book was number seven on the New York Times bestseller list for sports and recreation. I'm going to go buy it now. I don't really think that's common. I'm I'm sure it does something. Like having an article about you in the New York Times does something too. But what it really is is about prestige. And exactly. if I can if if I can point point out a pet peeve of mine, oh, uh, I will say that that a lot of authors that I know say, hey, I'm a, a best-selling author, and, and they go to their Amazon profile, and they say, and, you, know, you, you click and you see that bestseller tag on it. Um, and Amazon has, has basically made every book that ever comes out a bestseller because uh, it, it, they, they put them in these subcategories. I'm looking at what doesn't kill us right now, and I'm number one bestseller in, the, in sociology of sports. Like, whoever searches... It's very specific. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know. I, my, my previous book, which was a total flop called The Death on Diamond Mountain, um, was number one in Tibetan Buddhist studies for like a month. <laughs> wow. But, but well, you know, Tibetan Buddhist studies? I mean, who, like, that's not, that is not a bestseller status. So I, I feel like, for me, the reason why bestseller, by, by hitting that list was good is I could finally actually call myself a bestselling author because I feel like there was some sort of hoops I had to jump through to get there. Yeah, and then you get to have it in bios later, and it gets to be like, you know, it's... In L.A., we have lots of billboards that say things like, from the producer of X movie, you know, and right. they are always linking to a prior yes. evidence of uh -huh. success. Like, people were mm -hmm. like, will I go see that movie? Oh, it was the, and it's always like the producer. It's it's rarely like, right. I mean, the writer I'm into, or the director maybe, but mm -hmm. like the producer of this movie, I'm like, great. So the budget was really handled very similarly. Yeah. Um, but I think there is a little bit of that, like written by a best-selling author. Okay. They hired the best, <laughs> they hired the best caterers for the staff. It was great. I know exactly. The same craft staff. services. Um, yeah, no, I mean, but they'll do anything. It's like people need a reason to buy something. And I think that a brand name that they recognize is a reason to do it. And yeah. if you have access to it, if you've done it, you might as well smack it on your book. I, I think that's totally oh, legit. Yeah. But and yeah, I it is, totally it's a whole too. thing. <laughs> Like yeah. getting into the bestseller thing is the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's like you don't know what's going to get you in or what's going to keep you out. And sure, shoot for it, but don't be dissuaded if it doesn't happen. Right. And you, and you don't need to be on it. I mean, at the end of the day, what we care about as authors is, what, you know, other than writing our great books, which is very important, it's also the number of people who have bought your book, right? And yes. and, sale, and sales are critical um, to, uh, you know, that means people are reading it, right? Uh, you know, sales are the proxy for people actually reading it. Uh, and and it, it's important. You could write the best book in the world, uh, but if no one buys it, it doesn't matter. 
you know, that tree yeah. fell in the woods and no one heard it. And and this is why, again, marketing is important. This is why that 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 really full fledged marketing campaign that you do with incentives to keep you working at it are super important. Uh, and and you know, I, I'm sure that my book would have not been a New York Times bestseller if I hadn't had the audio rights. There is no doubt about that because I was, you know, every time I would do like a big podcast or something, I would see, I don't know, like 500 bucks in audiobook sales. And that's like real incentive. It's not like get rich money, right? <laughs> but it was certainly like, okay, I can do this. I can, I can live on this. But that's like for whatever amount of time you spent recording that podcast, you know, it's like, okay, so I spent half an hour recording it and I made 500 bucks. I mean, that's a pretty good return on investment. Yeah, except they don't like line up so you could do a whole day of podcasts, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to record for 10 hours and then I'm going to make like $5,000. Um, yeah, no, that would be amazing if it was if it was that direct. But it is, I think it is, you know, it's true. I think that the other point that you made, which I think you go into a lot more detail in the course, but was an important one, is that you cannot count on, if you go the traditional publishing route, you cannot count on their marketing team just doing it all for you. This is oh, not no. the Mad Men era where you just hand it over to the experts and send your book off. You have to have another, you have mm -hmm. to just assume that nobody's going to do anything and you have to promote as if you have self-published the book and uh, that will get you the best result. Yeah, I mean, you, you will likely get no result if you trust your your PR team. Uh, there are exceptions to this, right? There, I, I've talked to people recently who said they had the, a great PR team, although um, uh, they're, they're right before launch right now, so maybe I should talk to them a month out of launch. <laughs> You'll have to report uh, back and say right. what happened. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, and I feel like what, what has happened on multiple books of mine uh, is I've had these great talks with publishers with where they're like, yeah, we are really into your book. We love it. It's, it's so good and blah, blah, blah. And we're when we have this full plan of attack, right? We have a strategy and, and whatever. And, and, and they say they're going to do galleys and they know all the people at the New York Times. They have this like spiel, but I've heard it so many times now. And I've seen people, you know, at three different publishing houses, uh, and in general, um, in two of the books, one of the books I was like devastated at how little they did. Um, like nothing came out on time, nothing went anywhere. The book was a total flop and they put zero energy into it. But they promised me that they had like snipers, like the marketing snipers of the world. So I didn't even know that I needed to step up as, as much as I, as I had to. With the, the next book, um, I was like, okay, I'm not gonna fu you know, fuck up this marketing again. Uh, and I hired a publicist for an amazing amount of money. It was something like $14,000 for the publicist, um, which is ludicrous, right? That is ludicrous amounts of I know, of money that's up to, from what you said mm -hmm. in the course, actually. I'm like, oh, God, mm -hmm. it's even worse than you thought. <laughs> well, it, it, was, it was 14, and then what happened is I paid him half up front, and, and you know, we're, we're three weeks out of the launch of What Doesn't Kill Us, and not, uh, and he, and, and the only thing that had been lined up was a single review in like the like uh, local newspapers in like Miami. Oh <laughs> and, boy! And I was like, Oh my Miami god! Miami is like, yeah. perfect for that topic right. too, because it's great yeah. for ice baths. Right. And I was like, Wait, you, you, you don't? There's nothing going on. Like, you know, he's like, Yeah, I've been sending out this these PR releases, and like, just no one's biting. But I can't promise results. And I'm like, Yeah, you can't promise results, but. 
um, you need them if I'm going to pay you the remainder of this money. And right. and I and I ended up firing him uh, about uh, 15 days before the launch. And, and and I did the whole thing myself. I built my own media list. I built my own contacts. Um, you know, pretty exhaustively. And I I made a just a really good pitch. And uh, and through those efforts, I landed about 80 media spots. That is um, amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing for a cobbled together ca- last minute campaign. Uh, and and it was and and but the the the. The issue was is that you know I really just didn't want to do it, right? I was like, oh, please let just someone else handle this. But at, at the end of the day, the only person who can promote uh, their work is the author, right? They're the best voice because they understand it. They understand who the readers are. They they have been thinking about this topic for like two years, right? At this point, um, and you can't assume that a, a hired publicist is going to do it for you, or even the publisher, because you know if you think about who's you know, at this publishing house, let's, they, they probably fired their person who'd been there for 30 years because they were too expensive. That's been happening in the last 10 years, I've noticed this. But then you see you have this new, newer person who, who's in, in play, and every season they have to promote 12 books. Well, at best, you're only going to get one twelfth of their attention, right? But at worst, they have one person who's super famous, like Stephen King on the roster, and they're like, well, I'm just going to put my effort into the known... <laughs> quantity here. Why would I right. put extra work into these other people? And since I am not Stephen King, uh, you know, I get the, the least attention uh, and it ends up being, you know, a, a, like a, a suicide, like, like it's like career suicide to really trust um, these PR departments uh, in general. And I think in specifics, you really do have to evaluate your local place, but I, I just don't trust most PR people I've mentioned, until they show the cards that they actually have, they actually demonstrate that they're doing something above and beyond, uh, I, I would say, do it all yourself. And uh, and once you take responsibility, it's actually this magical thing, is that uh, you realize, well, wow, I have power now. I, I, I It's not just this random series of events, whether or not I get publicity, whether or not people start talking about my book. It's stuff that I can do, and it's not like rocket science. It's like I have to get, you know that paper might want to read my book. I need to get the book into their hands. Like, it's like you know, it's, it, it's sort of just moving a marble from what point A to point B. Definitely. I mean, I think it's also something you said in, in the course that I agreed with too, is like, well, you just act as if they're not going to do anything. And then if they do, it's a pleasant surprise. And yes. I think that if you are capable of writing a pitch and selling a book deal to a publisher you are also capable of writing a pitch and pitching your topic for a show because you know just like publishers need books or else they wouldn't exist if there's no books written they're not going to sell anything just Mm -hmm. like newspapers and shows and podcasts i can say very directly there's there's nothing if there's no guests or there's no topics so they do need you Mm -hmm. um you just have to make it really easy for them to say yes. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like you have to do it well. You have to be like a pitch shark, right? A shark of the pitch world and and get out there and, and get something that they do want to, to, to study. But as you say, you've been doing this for a while now, right? You By the time you get to book deal, you, be, you have already done at least one successful pitch and probably a lot more than that. So you deploy those skills in your favor. And yeah, it's... 
uh, you know, it doesn't guarantee success, right? You can still flop. <laughs> you can still fail at this in any number of ways, but at least you have control over that. So your hand is on the, the, the driver's wheel as you, as you go into this demolition derby called publishing. Yeah. I will say, I mean, this is like my chance to have a soapbox moment here, but um, you do have a lot of stuff in there, which I think is very important. So I can't speak to all of these. Scott talks about pitching magazines and their lead times and their um, how long you have to think about when you get a book in somebody's hands. Um, I will say I have noticed an uptick in people contacting this show like four to five days before their book is going to come out. Um, Uh And saying, oh, my book is coming out. I really want to come on your show. Your show is really great. And I so appreciate everybody who writes in. I really do. And I read all of the messages. But I will say, I mean, I can only speak from my personal show. But right now we're recording beginning of May. I'm booked through the end of September. So if you have a book coming out in four days, you're going to miss the boat. And it might be Mm -hmm. that you have an amazing book that they would love to hear about. But given that there is a gap for most people between when the book comes out and or when you finish writing the book and when it comes out, you've got to use that time to reach Mm -hmm. out to the places and don't wait until it's a week before because you will miss all that publicity Mm -hmm. because the, the people that you have heard of that you want to put your book with, like the news, like the New York times, like other newspapers or the New Yorker or whoever, or Kirkus or all of these places that have reviews, they know what's coming out and they need Mm -hmm. to know that you are interested or that you have a book for them like at least six months in advance right at least right and that's like the minimum entry point to getting the getting the the full campaign started and there's the long leads and medium leads and short leads like radio programs sometimes you know might be a day in some weird Mm. cases right so so there's like a, a like you have to sort of understand the whole field but your pr campaign starts at least six months out there's no doubt about that you know and this is one of the ways to use that lag time between final manuscript and publishing which is there for every major publisher um, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you, you know, you got to get your ass in gear quick. It's, and if you don't do that, you, again, as you say, you miss the boat, even, even if you have the best thing ever. Yeah, I have. I mean, I could, I could say, I mean, there are dozens of books that I have gotten pitches on that people have sent me, whether that's publicists or people themselves. And I'm like, I love this book and I don't have room because mm-hmm. My husband will stab me if I try to make us do this twice a week. And I also right. don't think that people want to listen to a full show twice a week. There just isn't, there's a certain right. amount. So you have to think about the people that you want to promote your book and think about the constrictions that they're under and how you can make it really easy for mm-hmm. them. Yeah, absolutely. That's probably and- the most aggressive thing I've ever said on this show. But I just, I, I've, I've gotten to a point where I have to say no a lot more than I used to. and. Right. That's hard. It's hard. You don't want to be the person saying no to people. But you also, um, I think that whatever, you know, small corner of the internet I inhabit, every other press outlet is dealing with, an, a, you know, an iteration of many, many, many more people coming at them. Mm-hmm. So it's possible to get it if you do it right and you do it on the timing and you follow the little guidelines that they have about how to contact them. You can do it, but you got yeah, to do it skip like, the to guidelines. the T. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, generally, their guidelines are usually a lie. 
<laughs> this usually goes straight to a slush pile. It's been my experience. Maybe in like your podcast, you know, it's probably... At the secretlibrarypodcast.com, yeah. our contact yeah. page is not a lie, I will say. Right. But I cannot speak for everybody else. Yeah, but most if you know people someone, like, <laughs> do If that. you know someone at a publication, then that is... Do not ignore them. Do yeah. not ignore that contact. Talk to but them. Never send something to like pitches at thenewyorker.com. I promise oh, you God. that is not read. I promise you that no one has ever looked at that email address. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. But yeah. Yeah, because I think that the the critical thing and something that you cover really well is the anatomy of the pitch and what a pitch needs to look like. And you're mm -hmm. really generous in sharing examples of pitches, which I think is kind of a huge deal for people to have access to, is to look at an oh, actual yeah. pitch that has worked. That's a cool thing that you've shared. Yeah, I, I put like, a, I think eight pitches or maybe 10 magazine pitches somewhere in that area of like pitches that that had succeeded at major publications and i think i even put two or three pitches that didn't make it <laughs> that that for whatever reason they can read them you're, you know you guys can can check them out and be like hmm this didn't make it because you're an idiot scott that's why it didn't make it or you could be like <laughs> or or maybe you could be like this really should have made it and that was an injustice scott and either way you're probably right yeah, it's just, I think it's it's like there are humans reading these things who may be in a certain kind of mood, or maybe they've read something similar, or, or mm -hmm. maybe they're just like, yes, this is what I wanted today, and I didn't even mm -hmm. know it. Like, you don't know who's on the other end of this pitch line that you're submitting. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, even getting rejected, you know, with my... Um... With the, the Wim Hof book, you know, the book that is a New York Times bestseller, that started out as a, as a pitch to 40 magazines, not 40, maybe probably 12 magazines, uh, that uh, was a 100% rejection rate until I went back to an editor and like, called in a favor at a magazine, and they finally said yes to it, and then they killed it after a oh, year no. of sitting on it. And, and then I, because they did, they thought it wasn't um, unique enough. They're like, that's not surprising. And, you know, and the book was about me, like being naked on the glacier and controlling my body temperature. But he said, that's not surprising. <laughs> and then, like we, uh, we, look, we took one look at you and we said, that guy hangs out naked on a glacier. We yeah. Right. Um, and then, uh, and then I, uh, but, but even despite all that, I was able to, to resell it again. And, you know, to, to one of the magazines that had originally rejected it. Uh, and then it ended up being a book. And, you know, the thing is, it's like, you never know what's going through someone's mind when they read read a, a pitch. You know, you you catch them at any moment in time, and and sometimes they had a great coffee that morning and they're feeling jazzed about things, and sometimes their spouse um, stabbed them, as you know, you said was a potential with <laughs> because they their, their spouse they tried to suggest mm -hmm. two episodes a week and they got stabbed. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, that could ha that could totally happen. And then you're like, I don't. You're not going to accept the next pitch, no matter how good it was, right? No, because I'm bleeding. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, but if you treat if you treat this as like in a way a game, uh, it makes it less personal. You know, because you, you realize that you can't predict everything that happens on the editor's side. It's not always personal. Sometimes it is, but it's not always personal coming from them when you get these rejections. So if you treat it as sort of like, okay, we're, there's a system and we're playing with it and, and it, you know, and sometimes this works, sometimes it doesn't, it actually becomes a much more manageable system, or at least for me. Maybe I just like games. I don't know. I love um, games. I also like collecting no's. Yeah. I like uh -huh. that as a game. Like, I'm just going to collect 20 no's on this. I'm going to submit it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to send it out 20 times Oops. and see what happens. I got a uh, one of my uh, early on in my career. I got a a rejection from 
David Remnick. I pitched him an idea. Uh, David Remnick is the, the uh, editor-in-chief of The New Yorker. And, yeah. and I sent one directly to him because it's really easy to figure out what his um, email address is, by the way. Everyone email him. Um, (laughs) Yeah, these publications have formats to their email. (laughs) And so I sent him an email. It was a pitch. It was a terrible pitch. There's no way it was going to end up in the New Yorker. And he he wrote uh, a uh, a one-word response, which was no. (laughs) 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 It wasn't even like, yeah, thank you so much for the great idea. It's not right for us. Nothing like that. It was just no. I was like, all right, that's legit. (laughs) I think you should frame that. It's It's so awesome. Yeah, it was back when I had a Hotmail address, so I don't think I have it anymore. Oh, bummer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been hugely helpful. And I I think that thinking about writing strategically is something that we aren't necessarily encouraged to do enough. And I mm-hmm. think that part of it is something you talked about at the end, too, which is valuing what you're doing. Because... Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to get out of this business side of it or I'm not going to, I'm not going to have to talk about this. Mm -hmm. Um, But you are not the first one we've had on. We've had a number of people on talking about like the fact that you actually do need to think about money when you write. And Mm -hmm. I think it shows respect to what you're doing to consider these things. And it means that you're taking it seriously and that it's, it's something of value. And you talked about assigning value in it, which was a helpful session in the course. Um, I think that I just want to end on that note that all of these things that you're doing and all of these things that you're maybe hesitant to do or feel bad about are because your your worth is uh, your work is worth something and that right. you need to hold it that way in order to put it out there and have it succeed. It's, it's worth something because you put your energy and your love and your creativity into it. It's also worth something because it's actually worth dollars and cents. And those two, you know, that, that, that intrinsic value, which is what's going to get remembered in the long run, is going to be there no matter what if you did it with, you know, honestly. But, you know, we need to learn also how to connect those two things. How do you connect your wallet to your heart? And it's not something that most people do instinctually, right? It's not something that, that we want to do, but we also do want to, to you know, pay health care, especially in America. Oh, we can't get onto the healthcare. Sorry, no, I mentioned this God, in the we'll priest, priest show. Um, but you know, to get rent and and to, to to do the things you want to do in life that aren't just typing on a computer, you need money. And and I, I hope that, that my hope with this course is that I give people at least one tool that they can take away and be like, this is going to help me. You know connect those two things uh and you know there's a lot of lessons there so you might even collect more than one tool uh, but uh I, you know I, I really hope that people um you know listen to this and dig it and uh because for uh, listeners like you uh um there's a we have a coupon code for 25 percent so off with the secret word if you you have to type this in and, and the secret code is secret library in all caps nice. um, yeah yeah for 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 reals uh 25 off and you can get it there and uh learn learn some stuff about, about the stuff yeah i think it's a great idea um yeah we will have a link to the course in the show notes Sweet. Um, so you can go right to it and you can also go to secretlibrary.com slash fine print so we will set that link up as well for those nice. of you who are driving at high speed please don't look at the show notes while you're driving that's dangerous oh 
Yeah, or do the Wim Hof breathing, for those of you who read my book. Don't do that while Don't do those either. things either. You might pass out. Yeah, Yeah. be careful when you drive, <laughs> if you're listening while you're driving. But um, thank you so much for coming on. And as always, like it's inspiring to talk about, like, yes, you can live as a writer. This is right. something that is possible and is worth it, pursuing. Although I will say it's a little sad that we can't do the, you'll definitely get rich thing anymore. Now <laughs> writers are like, you can dream of being middle class. But you know what? You can be middle class. It's possible. It is possible. And, you know, I think that's, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of over promising people can get rich on things. There's been a lot of that message running around and... I think like you can make a solid living doing something you love. That's a, that's a real result. Yeah, totally. I'm into it. So thank you for talking about this. Thank you for creating it. Thank you for um, hanging out and talking about writing. Yeah. So good. uh, You know, uh, talking to you again. And I hope that we get to have dinner another time. And I know now it's time for dinner. Another dinner, another podcast. It'd be great. I love it. It's a perpetual cycle. Hey, taking a quick second between the two interviews to give you a suggested title again for use with your free credit if you're a new listener of Audible. You can get this credit at secretlibrarypodcast.com slash audible. And given that Scott just talked about the advantage of using the audiobook platform, keeping your rights and sharing it, I thought you would be interested in another title that talks about business tips for being an author. Um, Joanna Penn has been on the show before, and her audiobook, Business for Authors, How to Be an Author Entrepreneur, is another wonderful resource. And I love this one in particular because she narrated it herself, and she has a really wonderful voice for anyone who listens to her show. So I highly recommend Business for Authors, How to Be an Author Entrepreneur by Joanna Penn. If you use your free credit from the Audible trial, you get at secretlibrarypodcast.com slash audible. Okay, let's get on with the show. My second interview today is with journalist Harmon Leon and cartoonist Ted Rawl. They collaborated on the book Meet the Deplorables, Infiltrating Trump America. Harmon Leon is a gonzo-style journalist whose writing has appeared in Esquire, The Nation, and National Geographic. Throughout the book, Leon donned various disguises to go undercover throughout a variety of interest groups in order to explore those that supported Trump leading up to the election. Ted Rall is a two-time winner of the RFK Journalism Award and a Pulitzer Prize finalist. He added his political cartoon work to accent and expand the narrative of the book. So I got a chance to catch up with the two of them and talk a little bit more about what it was like to go into fringe groups and learn more about what the people were like there, and then to interpret it through political cartoon work and also turning it into a book. So here we go with Harmon Leon and Ted Rall. Hey, Harmon, thanks so much for coming on. You know what? It is good to be here. (laughs) Awesome. I'm really interested in talking about your book, Meet the Deplorables, because it's it's there have been a lot of books written about the Trump election and the sort of the whole thing that it feels like a lot of the books written about it have been looking back from after when the election happened. And you're one of the few I can think of who really started well before in the lead up and started to think about what the impact was going to be socially and how this was going to work. So I'm wondering what what kind of clued you like, I want to start doing this now. 
And at what point did the idea for the book come? And then you started to want to go and I guess, I don't know if I want to use the word infiltrate, but to start. Yeah, you, you can use that word. That's, that's, a, that's maybe almost the proper word to use. Yeah. Yeah. So w- let's talk about, let's go back to the beginning. Like when did the idea for the book start? And then how did you start taking steps to go out and insert yourself into the population you were writing about? Yeah, well, this is actually my seventh book, and I've infiltrated extremist groups, you know, for years now. So it's like anyone who is like sort of a fringe group is always on my peripheral. Um, and with with this book, it, it, these fringe groups, and so, a friend of mine noted this, uh, you know, they were always just kind of like very on the edges and margin, you know, on the uh, of society, but yet with our current president. These groups, these type of groups I've been infiltrating, uh, you know, they're now in the mainstream. They've been given the thumbs up by the commander in chief. So, again, some of these stories I've been uh, working on, you know, like anti-immigration and and, and racist hate groups. uh, That's stuff I've always been covering. And, uh, again, with our current president, uh, they are suddenly in the mainstream. So again, I started working on, you know, some of these stories go a few years back, but uh, when we have President Trump, they all seem to be umbrellaed together uh, to comprise, you know, Trump supporters in America. So how is it for you to, you know, something that you clearly feel pretty polar opposite of spending a lot of time in those communities and spending a lot of time inside of them how how does that impact you and then how does that translate into something that you're writing yeah i mean the more extreme and the more opposite the 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 subgroups are um the more intriguing it is it's like it's more uh you know even though your ideology is completely opposite and their kind of way of thought is repulsive it's never boring and it's always fascinating they're not holding back because they they you are a journalist asking them questions they think you're simply just one of them and you see them operate without filter how do you think this is changing journalism because there's such a conversation happening now in you know in the the trump administration or that there's been this rise of you know the buzzword fake news and all of these things that journalism i think has never been more mistrusted by such a large portion of the the country as it seems to be now and how do you see this changing you know the way that people report on events when we basically have two camps of journalism in the country now it's like there's the one that believes this policy and there's the one that believes the other and nobody wants to engage with the other persons and they seem to just get more um entrenched and no one is interacting with each other so how how do you see um a way forward uh- well, in, in again, it's world. like for the same reason uh, after the Trump administration, you know, people are going to be tired of crazy that they'll want sane uh, with Trump barking out about fake news. News outlets have to be extra careful now to, you know, double fact check everything. No one wants to be labeled the fake news. So therefore, they're taking the extra measures right. to avoid getting that label. And that is being extra cautious that, you know. With, with fact-checking and all that. Have you stayed in, t- in contact in any way with, with any of these uh, these sort of populations or these groups that you were in touch with for the book? And have you seen 
How are they feeling sort of after the election and more recently? You know, has their feeling about, you know, they were obviously really hopped up and writing songs and getting tattoos yeah. and all of this stuff beforehand, feeling like this is going to change everything. But now that we're over a year into the presidency, do you have any sense of, of whether they feel like it's worked out the way they wanted? Or I'm, I'm interested in how they feel after they actually got him in. Yeah, so I, I thought like the last, a great last chapter would be to find someone who got a Trump tattoo but has gotten it removed or like tattooed over. So I, I contacted the, uh, the tattoo parlor in New Hampshire just to see if he would provide any insights into that. And he was just like, nope, uh, best president ever. Everyone's happy with the tattoos. It's good that you, you bring up the, the tattoos again as an illustration of um, people's satisfaction with him, because I'm, I'm glad that we have Ted here as well, because, um, Ted, I wanted to talk to you about the process of sort of illustrating these concepts through the cartoons that are featured throughout the book. It must have been um, really fun to pull out all those issues. So what was your process like? Did you did you work together throughout the entire book writing process or did you get a manuscript and then work with it later i'm just interested how you pulled them together um yeah we uh, i i looked at uh the manuscript that Harmon submitted first and then uh went back and tried to figure out how to uh add cartoons that would make sense to each particular section uh, and i think that's generally the best method for um illustrating a book i think the the art, the, the the art has to follow the writing. Uh, so sometimes uh, it's it's kind of stressful because you tend to come in uh, while final edits are are being done. But uh, it worked out well. I think you know my goal here was kind of twofold and contradictory. I wanted to illustrate and amplify what Harmon was doing, but I also wanted to add and uh, and fill in maybe gaps or maybe. Uh, try to figure out where, um, try to add analysis. Um, you know, Harmon's um, approach in this particular book was to have the work, ex- have the Trump supporters uh, explicate themselves in order to, um, you know, provide us with some insight into where they're coming from. And I thought, you know, what what's inherently um, not going to be there is uh, sort of the... Um, the the other sides like for example the the failures of the democrats for example uh, it just can't be in in what harman was doing so i did some cartoons about that kind of thing also so i i was hoping that between the two of us um there would be a really full picture uh, both micro and macro analytical and personal um uh trying not to be both being uh, partisan and being uh you know, sort of anti-partisan all at the same time. And, um, you know, I think otherwise there's no purpose to doing a collaboration other than I like Harmon and I think he's cool, which is, <laughs> which is a good enough reason, I guess, for me, but not for the reader, you know? Yeah, I think that one of the things that I, I really loved when, um, you know, when you started to illustrate scenarios, because there was sort of these situations like the talking about immigration and then you have the cartoon about somebody you know, his life being played out where he was born in the U.S., like one of the dreamers getting sent back to Honduras. You know, you get send somebody back to Honduras and how that's going to feel for him. It was like a scenario of that where instead of just having, you know, 
the issues that people were talking about in the book, it was nice to see scenarios played out in the cartoons as to what might happen. Yeah, I mean, it's real. It's real life. You know, I'm glad you brought that that one up because, you know, the deportation stuff is has an absurdity to it, especially uh, when you think about the dreamers, for example, because, you know, these these are kids who are being sent back, you know, quote unquote back but they're not being sent back anywhere. They're actually being sent really for the first time in their memories to a place that they don't even know. I mean, uh, under Obama, he was sending people uh, back to back, quote back, back to Cambodia who don't speak uh, Cambodian. And so and they're having all sorts of problems over there. And so this is just a magnification, amplification of the same exact thing. So, yeah, that was a you know, I, I think cartoons work best when they're personal. Yeah, definitely. Or when they play out sort of a a trend, another one that I loved was the, you know, the Native American people watching the ships come in and saying, we better make them register. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, the thing is, you know, I don't mean to imply also that, you know, immigration, illegal immigration isn't a real issue or that, for example, there isn't a valid point to be made that, uh, you know, the the U.S. should know who's coming in and out across their borders. I mean, they should. Uh, Every country wants to know that sort of thing. But it's just that the... um, the, the, the extremism of the, what we're seeing out of the Trump administration doesn't think about any of the complexities on the other side. It's not trying to, to reason through anything and, and try to make things work. It's just very reactive. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to wrap up with one question to both of you, which is this, there's so many issues in, a, in an, a presidency where issues seem to change back and forth every few minutes. I wonder how the process was getting the book to print because everything is so timely and so time sensitive. Um, How did you figure out where to stop, like to wrap up the story for now? And how was it to kind of get it ready for publication, knowing that the issues were going to flip flop, you know, all over the place, even after the book was on shelves? Yeah, I mean, well, a lot of the issues are just general, uh, the issues and the groups have always been here, and they've always been on the fringes. And, uh, you know, suddenly, they have a voice in the White House that, that has, you know, amplified them and, and, and made them in the mainstream. So, you know, where to stop? It's like, you know, obviously, it was like trying to turn over the book in a time sensitive fashion and, uh, you know, trying to get it out there. You know, there was a lot more stories that I would love to have written, you know, that would have covered the terrain. Yeah, absolutely. Is this something you all want to keep working on? Because obviously the issue continues. Like Meet the Deplorables too, Or just like, you know, I'm thinking of like season two, like where are they now? Or you know, how are people, how is this playing out? How are people feeling? And also, you know, covering how the liberals are responding to this and some of the failures that people don't know about, you know, within people are unwilling to look at places where their own party has failed and very willing to look at places where the other party has failed. And I think there's probably a lot you could do with both sides. I'm just wondering how you're going to, what, what's next for both of you? Yeah. I mean, uh, we just have to see how the political drama plays out in real life to you know, right. inspire. Uh, but right now we're just like living in the thick of it. Yeah, of course. I mean, now you're into heavy promotion and getting it out there. And I, I, I would be fascinated to know the conversations you get to have as you are, you know, meeting with people who are reading the book. It's like you got to 
engage with one population in order to write the mm-hmm. book. But now the people who will choose to read this book are obviously very different people. And how they'll respond and what kind of conversations are sparked, I think, will be really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, again, like like I said about being on conservative radio shows is like what they pick up and, you know, agree with, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, about what is mentioned in the book. But uh, again, it's, you know, the overall mission of the book is not to broad stroke uh, the other side and just clearly write them off as evil. It's like, you know, obviously the evil ones are evil, but uh you know, just see the multi-complex reasons why people turn to Trump. Yes, absolutely. And what's next for you, Ted? Well, I have a two and a half book deal that I'm uh, trying to uh, to figure out how I'm going to get started. I'm working on a, uh, I've been doing graphic novel biographies of people like Bernie Sanders and Edward Snowden and Donald Trump. And uh, so I'm working on the new, uh, the, the one that just came out is about Pope Francis called Francis the People's Pope. And there, so I'm working on a new one about Aaron Swartz, who was the uh, Reddit guy who, um, was kind of a martyr to uh, free speech um, and uh, the and information wants to be free movement online. And um, I'm also working on a graphic novel called The Stringer, which is uh, sort of basically Breaking Bad meets journalism is the best way to describe <laughs> it. And uh, I'm really I'm really excited about that for sure. And I'm also working on a book, um, speaking of super timely stuff, about uh, the Never Again movement, um, the, uh, the kids who are... Uh, fighting for gun control legislation uh, in the wake of the Parkland, Florida shooting. So I've got books, books, books. Uh, in, yeah, you got in nothing pipeline. going on. Yeah, I'm <laughs> just sitting around. Are you sleeping? I, I, I sleep well. Yeah. In fact, that's kind of the key to being productive. Exactly. It must be. I mean, you'd have to to get all that done. I'm pro- I've always been prolific. I don't know if I'm any good, but I, whatever I do, I do a lot of it. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that I'm glad that you're both working on everything and that um, I look forward to seeing what you both work on next. And thank you so much for coming on to talk about the book. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram, where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.